Well, as a, uh, as a pastor and as your pastor, if you count me as such, uh, there's, there's something about the uh, you asked for it questions this year. We, the, we, in this month, we're taking the uh, sermon topics from uh, questions that are submitted from, uh, or requests from the congregation. And there's something that has uh, pleased me about it as a pastor, just the way several of them have had to do with the topic of God's forgiveness. Um, I'll introduce today's question more fully in, after we pray in just, a, in just a few minutes. But I, but you can tell by the title in the bulletin it's about God's forgiveness. Is it to be forgiveness or judgment for us? You know, we who are, us being we who are in Christ, we are saved. Uh, last week it was about a difficult verse in John, a saying of Jesus himself, which could at first blush um, appear to say that obtaining God's forgiveness is contingent or conditional on securing the forgiveness of people. Uh, so that people or someone else or maybe ourselves could prevent someone uh, from being forgiven by God by not forgiving them. I, I argue that such is not, that's not the case, but that our authority to release or retain sins is, is declarative and not determinative. You know, we declare what, what God has done with God's authority. But, but again, the topic is God's forgiveness. You know, it's, it's, a, you know, how do we, how are we sure that we have God's forgiveness uh, or that we're not standing in the way of God's forgiveness for someone else? And the week before that, which was the first you asked for it sermon, was about Moses' hard judgment, that, he, that this sin of striking the rock when, when, uh, when God had told uh, Moses just to speak to the, walk, to the rock and, and, and that water would, would come out of it. Uh, that he didn't get to, because of that, because of that outburst of anger, and he he did not get to enter the promised land. He got to see it, uh, but he didn't get to enter it at, at least in the uh, time of his natural life. And there it is again. You know this concern for God's forgiveness and what does it what does it mean uh, that we have it. And the reason it pleases me that the people of this church think about that, think about forgiveness, have questions about God's forgiveness, is that those kinds of thoughts, at least in my opinion, those kinds of thoughts, those kind of questions, those kind of concerns are profoundly countercultural. You, you didn't, if you're thinking about that, God's forgiveness, or if you have questions about it, or that did not come... Uh, from the culture in which we all live. <laughs> Those kinds of thoughts have, are just a, far afield from what, pe what people in the world, when we leave here, what people are thinking about and talking about. And it, today it's about grievance. You know, everybody's been done wrong, everybody's been done wrong, and somebody needs to pay. Grievance is the coin of the realm, you know, now. and. And, um, and, you know, like, as always, America is rich and getting richer, you know, they're in grievance and payment. There's no, nobody's talking about forgiveness, nobody's offering it, and nobody's seeking it. <laughs> and, so, and so if you, well, let me just say this, the people who are, uh, the generations that are represented here today, the generations represented here today, have far more members in them, far more people in them, who presume to hold even God responsible for his sovereign governing affairs, which, which in the estimation of some isn't going so well. 
you know, I'm going to have a lot of questions to ask, you know, that God's got some explaining to do, you know. <laughs> there are far more people who, who even presume to hold God responsible, hold God accountable for his management affairs than people who realize that when, when people appear before their maker, it's not God who's in the dock, <laughs> but it's us. It, it, it's people. So it, so it pleases me that there's a concern in, in this congregation enough to be represented by three or four or five questions about that have something to do with God's forgiveness because that didn't, that concern, that question, it didn't come from the world. It came from the spirit who indwells. Uh, it came from the, the word that feeds you and hopefully from the church that you're a part of. And so uh, with that, with that, uh, before we kind of delve into another aspect of that same topic, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for shaping our hearts, uh, our minds, our characters in ways that contribute to our sanctification, our preparation for an eternity with you. Uh, forgive our reluctance, uh, sometimes even our resistance to what you have set out to accomplish in, in us who are being saved. Thank you for your patience with the smallness of our faith and, and the weakness of our resolve to love and follow Christ above all earthly and fleshly things. And we, we ask that today that we would fully receive your word and we would feel the weight of of its truth enough to hate our sin and its consequences while loving and rejoicing in your forgiveness through the blood of Christ and the good news of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, here's the question. Here's today's question as it came to me. There are scriptures that proclaim forgiveness of sins and that God will remember them no more. There are other places where it appears that all, in, in quotes, will be required to give an account. Well, that's all she wrote, but the implication's clear enough. What gives? <laughs> Which is it? How do those things go together? Has God forgotten all my sins in Christ or has he remembered them all and he's got them up in this cloud, he's got them in the cloud and they're going to, and they're all, they're all ready, they're going to be ready and, and they're going to be at the judgment, they're going to be trotted out and everybody's going to have your own personal parade of horribles, you know, for all to see at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, the, the questioner is right about uh, the passages in two categories. Uh, you know, you could categorize, you know, you, you, a lot of people here could think of verses that fit in each of those categories. Well, the first one, our favorite one, you know, our favorite category of the two are the ones who speak about forgiveness. It, in, it includes, actually, the one was alluded to in the question, you know, over the, about he will remember them no more. That could be Hebrews 8.12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Or could be Hebrews 10.17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
Hebrews or, or Jeremiah 31 is from really uh, from the quotes in Hebrews are drawn from it. Uh, 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake and I will, rem I will not remember your sins. You know, not God not remembering your sins, it's, it's, it's not one verse, is it? It's, it's, there's quite a number of them. It's speaking just that language. And then there are others along the same lines that we also, that don't speak about God forgetting, but we also uh, hold them dear. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I lost a nice pair of glasses one time uh, when I turned Dave Richards' catamaran completely upside down in the middle of Watts Bar Lake. Strong gust of wind came along. Really strong gust. The catamaran, me and my glasses went three different directions. And let me tell you, those glasses are gone. <laughs> gone, gone. They are gone. God casts our sins, it says, into the depths of the sea, which is a lot deeper than Watts Bar Lake. You know, that's the idea. They're gone. You're not going to see them again. And, 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 of course, there's a lot, of, a lot of verses like that, right? A lot of verses that speak of God's forgiveness, of the full and complete and, and forever. And they're, and they're wonderful verses. We should believe them with all our hearts. We should hold them dear. We should memorize them. And... and they're not addressed. They're for you if you're in Christ. If you believe in Christ, they're for you. You know, they are not addressed to those who reject God and His salvation, but they are for all who receive salvation through faith in Christ. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. If that's you, what's, that, what's he say next? He who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Tremendous verses. And then there's this other category of verses whose emphasis, well, maybe we should say whose emphasis is different. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, for example. So whether we are at home or away, in the context is from the body, whether we are alive or whether we are dead, you know, that's what it means. We make it our aim to please Him, for we, we, those who are trying to please Him, you know, we, we Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may, may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, 
whether good or evil. That's not, you know, that's not an obscure verse. It's just, you know, one verse we have to deal with. There are lots more like it. I heard Norman Geisler say one time, some of you may know the name, I heard him say in, in one time, he said, well, he said it's, a, it's just one verse. We can always deal with one verse. We can say something about one verse. We're not theologians for nothing. <laughs> well, this is not just one verse we have to explain. I, I always try to be careful to watch myself on the line between when are you explaining a verse and when you are explaining it away. I don't want to explain any away. But you have that one. Uh, we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, here's some others along the same line. Romans 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And that's Paul speaking as a Christian to Christians, and he's including himself specifically among those who will stand before God's judgment. James 5.9 Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So he's talking about believers in Christ, of course, brothers, and yet he warns of facing the judge of the living and the dead, Christ himself, who apparently doesn't like it when his people grumble about each other, and apparently there are consequences for those who do. Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And, and these kinds of verses could also be multiplied. You know, we could, we could stack up some more. But, I, but I've chosen the ones I've chosen because they specifically include believers in Christ. You know, because we could look at we could look at a lot of verses speak about judging judging mankind. God will judge all men and say, "Well, we're excluded from that. We're excluded." But I've chosen the ones that include us. We must all appear. Uh, the brothers will be judged. Each of us will give an account. And I, and I've chosen those because there is a sense in which we will not be judged. Uh, we will not be subjected to the wrath of God poured out upon our sins because the righteous wrath of God was poured out on our sins already at the cross of Jesus Christ whose suffering and death exhausted the wrath of God against us. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of, for our sins. And that word, propitiation, refers to the satisfaction of God's righteous wrath against our sin. It means that His wrath was exhausted. It was used up. 
It was poured out on Christ. There's nothing, there's nothing left in the cup of God's wrath against your sin if you're in Christ. Because Why? Because Christ drank it dry. He drank the dregs. He took it all. He said on the cross, it is finished. And it is. Because it was finished. The super, with tomorrow, with tomorrow's eclipse, I think of this. Be, because it is finished, the supernatural darkness that, that descended on the scene at the crucifixion, because it is finished, it lifted and the sun shone again. Because it was finished, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, opening the way you know, so that sinners like you and I can come boldly before the throne of grace into God's holy of holies, into His presence, not in the righteousness of our own, uh, but the, with the very righteousness of God through faith in Christ. And because, it, because it's finished, it's finished, the bonds of death, even, even the bonds of death, were loosed and Christ rose from the dead. That's what's in view when Jesus says the one who believes does not come into judgment. That's what's in view when Paul proclaims there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or uh, you think eschatologically, you know, the end times, the great white throne judgment we read of Revelation 20, the final judgment upon sin. The judgment touches no one. You read it, look it up. Revelation 20, read the chapter. The judgment touches no one whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And yet, even for those who have definitely already escaped the wrath of God through Christ, there is room for accountability before God. They're, they're not contradictory. Uh, there, there's room for assessment for reward or lack of reward. There's room for recompense. There's there's room for something. The Bible even goes so far to, to, to call judgment sometimes. If you're a parent, you could say to your child, Child, I want you to know that there is nothing you could do that would sever our relationship. I will always be your father or your mother. You will always be my son or my daughter. I will always love you with a mother's love. I will always love you with a father's love. I'll never abandon you. And if you were to express such a heartfelt, true statement, what would you say? If the child then said, well, if that's the case, I guess I can do whatever I want, and you're going to take it without anything to say. I guess it really doesn't matter, ultimately, if you happen to be pleased with me or not, because you're going to be the same either way. You're going to love me either way. I can disrespect you. I can 
I can disobey you, I can steal from whatever I want. And you aren't going to do anything about it at all because you're going to love me no matter what. What would you what would you say as a parent if that's the attitude the child took? You'd, you'd probably say something along the lines of, that's not quite what I said. <laughs> uh, I'll always be your mother, I will always be your father, but that inviolable... Um, unalterable, permanent, forever, motherly or fatherly love will manifest itself in a variety of ways depending on you, little one. <laughs> They're younger. You can say, Mommy or Daddy are definitely capable of not being happy with you because we love you. As hard as that is for a little mind to grasp. And that particular manifestation of love definitely will not be pleasant for you. You know, love is a many-splendored thing, right? If you said something along those lines... Would you have contradicted yourself? You know, a, a child might say, that's a contradiction. That's a contradiction. <laughs> but really, would you have contradicted yourself? No, you wouldn't have at all. And it's really true. Sometimes, as a parent, you're going to be very unhappy and make things unpleasant for the child because you love them. It's not a contradiction, it's a manifestation of it. There's room for accountability, there's room within the love, within the within that that certain relationship that can't be broken, there is definitely room for accountability, for discipline, even unpleasantness, even pain. Hebrews says this exactly. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So there, far from being a contradiction, there's all, Hebrews are, there's actually a cause and effect relationship. It's not a contradiction. And in terms of our relationship with God the Father, there's even room for reward and loss of expected reward in an assessment, a weighing, an accounting which may be called, and the Bible does call sometimes, judgment. I, I haven't mentioned yet that the, the in some ways this, is the, this passage is the granddaddy of them all because it shows how salvation by grace through faith and judgment for works in the flesh can be kind of put together. I, I've been saving it, you know, kind of for the end. But it's 1 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 10, be six verses. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. The day, the day what? The day of judgment. 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, in this passage, I've made the point before that I, I think this passage is often over-individualized, hyper-privatized in a way that Christians read it and the way that Christians teach it. And the way this happens is that here's the kind of the presentation of that, of that passage. The foundation that the Paul is talking about is our, is our salvation in Christ. That's our foundation. That's the foundation of your, uh, of your life if you're in Him. Uh, how you live your life is how you build on the foundation. Those are the works, the deeds done in the flesh, the habits, the practices, all the things you say, all the things you do, all, even all the things you think that, that make up a, a life. And at the judgment, at the judgment seat of Christ, God tests the quality of the lies we've built. And even in the case of a believer who has nothing in his life that's worthy of reward, it's a hypothetical, but there it is, even if, even if there would be nothing worthy of reward, uh, the passage says he himself will be saved because even in a total lost fire, the foundation's there. The foundation survives. What I've criticized about that kind of approach to the passage is that that teaching, as I've stated, and I hope I've stated it fairly, I've taught it myself many times before, before I kind of came to see something else, is that that interpretation of it erases the church, which is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. The foundation that he speaks of is the foundation of, of the church. You could say the gospel, but it's the foundation of the church itself, not our individual lives, but of the of the church, the household of faith, the community of believers who are being built up into a spiritual house. And as you probably know, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians at all, there were quite a number of believers there at the church at Corinth whose contribution to the life and character of the church was not going to be such that withstood God's examination, God's judgment. Yeah, there's a lot of problems at Corinth. You say, what's your, you can say to somebody, what's your impact on the church? What, what's different about the church? What do you bring to it? What's, what's, what part of you and your personality and your, your doings, your ways of living, you know, what do they bring into this household of faith? And there were some, I don't think anyone would say this, but the truth of it is say, well, I'm at the center of a lot of fights around here. <laughs> I get a lot of them going. I even have a lawsuit against another member. <laughs> Somebody could say, that's my contribution. I think 1 Corinthians 3 says, wood, hay, straw, going to be burned up. It's worthless. What about, somebody could say, well, you know, I, what, how do you, what do I bring to the church? Well, I... I bring the sexual immorality and the acceptance of it. They love me, so they accept my sin, and they even celebrate their tolerance of it. In fact, I'm, somebody could say, I'm living with a woman who's not my wife, but she used to be my father's wife. Even the Gentiles, their hair catches fire when they hear about it. <laughs> but in the church, that's my contribution. I, you know, Paul is saying, 
it's, it's wood, it's hay, it's stubble, it's straw. It's worthless. It's going to be judged. It's bad. Someone, you know, someone, at, someone at Corinth could say, well, I bring a spirit of selfishness by making sure I get to the church meals first and eat up all the food and drink all the wine. In fact, sometimes I'm even drunk by the time other people get there. Wood, hay, straw. And on and on it goes at Corinth. And Paul is saying, here's what Paul is specifically saying in this 1 Corinthians 3, take care what your uh, contribution is to the life and character of the church that you are a part of. And when you just individualize everything there, you lose that. You lose that. Take care what your, your part is. You know, they... Uh, it's important. God's going to weigh it. He's going to test it. And there's going to be reward for some and some things, and it's going to be awesome. And there's going to be a sense of loss about some things and in some people, and it will not be pleasant at, at all. You know, we all bring something to it, don't we? Churches have... Revelation 2 and 3, we've been just been finished a few weeks ago in the adult Sunday school class. But you, one of the things I see is that churches have characters. You know, church, a church has a personality of its own, uh, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of its own. You see that in the, seven, uh, the, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So what do you bring to it? What do you bring to it? You know, you've heard it said, I've heard this said all my life. You know, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it, you'll ruin it. Because we bring ourselves, we bring what we are, and it picks up the character. So that's what, what I've criticized about in, in the past about the way some people read 1 Corinthians 3 is that they interpret it in a way that loses Paul's emphasis on the church, which is really what he's talking about. But I have to admit, having said that, I have to admit that the judgment seat of Christ goes well beyond what Paul was emphasizing in 1 Corinthians 3. He was addressing a particular situation, a particular church. It had lots of problems, and he highlights the, the, judgments, you know, the, the judgment on our contribution to the church. But the judgment seat of Christ goes well beyond that. Well beyond just the kind of narrow interest in what do I bring to the church that I am a part of. Well, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether, do, whether good or evil. What we have done in the body in the days of our life, it seems, a, to me, it seems a much bigger, broader category than what impact do I have on the church that I'm a part of? <laughs> Doesn't it seem bigger? The deeds done in the body. You know, a lot of deeds done in the body really don't impact this church one way or another. As important as that is, 
Well, the basis for some of the rewards that are mentioned in the, in the Scripture. Listen to this, 2 Timothy 4. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, loving his appearing, which is his return. Longing for it. Praying for it. Yearning for it. I mean, that goes really to our... Uh, that, that you could, I'm sure you could tell over the long haul how people talk, you know, what people say, whether they love, or they love the Lord's appearing, but in, a, in, a, in great measure it goes to your inner thoughts, doesn't it? Your inner attitude of your heart. It's difficult for me to see, and us to see in each other, but God sees it. And he reward, he want, he's going to reward it. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Well, that goes to how you handle it when you are under trial. That, that goes to whether your heart for the Lord, you know, your love for the Lord, whether it holds strong, whether it endures, stays in place when you are tested by suffering or whether it, whether it is somehow contingent on whether you're suffering or not. Do you love God only when things are going good? And do you turn against Him when, or we may turn against Him, might be strong language, but kind of put Him on suspension when things are going poorly? I mean, that's a temptation we all face to one degree or another, one time or another. But there's going to be, it's a test. It's a test, and it, it'll count. It's going to count how we took it, how we responded to it. Whether our affection for the Lord was, uh, was changed by it. Did we turn away? When the trial came, did we turn away from him or did we double down on pressing into him? <laughs> Loving him more. Well, to, to my way of thinking, that goes well beyond what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. Be careful how you contribute to the life and character of the church. Because this is, could be something that the Lord sees and, and it's not really apparent to other people at all. It's not going to be obvious. Uh, because, let's face it, we all know the right thing to say. It's, it's very, it's, um, we all have our church face, you know. We, we all have a ways to keep things private, private. But this is something that goes to the heart of who we are, how we think what our affections are for God in a season of trial. Jesus even makes mention of judgment upon... This is a very... Nobody likes this verse. Every careless word. You know the verse? Matthew 12, 36, if you want to look it up, but you don't. 
every careless word. How we talk. The things that we say when we're not being careful about what we say. That, that's now to me, that goes well beyond, you know, be careful how you impact the life of the church, you know, the, the life and character of the church you're a part of. This, so this judgment seat of Christ is, is uh, bigger than what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. It goes to everything we are, our life, what we have done, what we have said, what, how we think, our affections toward God and others, or lack of them. I don't think there could be anybody who could or should think about the judgment seat of Christ without a strong sense of humility. Hebrews says it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Who could be so presumptuous as to say, I got this, no problem. No problem. That's going to be a breeze. I believe at the judgment seat of Christ you are going to be and me too more than glad this is what Paul might say exceedingly glad for every single time you ever took the way of escape God gave you rather than succumbing to the temptation before you you know, it happens. You know, you're tempted. You look for that promised way of escape. You take it and you go on. You know, you forget about it. You forget about it. But, you know, there's coming times when you're going to say, wow, am I glad I did that. Not the other. I think you're going to be thrilled. Me too. For every time you inconvenience yourself to do some small good deed, even something so small as Jesus is giving a cup of cold water to someone because you are a follower of his. You see, but even that will not lose its reward, right? Can you imagine something so small being rewarded? I think so. I've thought this sometimes, and I've said this before. I'll say it again. The uh, can you imagine if Jesus said, "Would you give that? Would you give that person a cup of cold water?" And you say, "Sure." And then what if? What would you think if Jesus said, "Okay, now what do I owe you for that?" Well, you say nothing. <laughs> nothing. Don't. Yeah, I'd be. When you, I'd be so embarrassed. What? What is the? But he says, even that will not lose its reward. He says, he says, pray in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. you we're going to be so 
happy for every time we did something like that. And, and I believe we're also going to lament the times we, we took a pass on doing the small good deed. Or we succumb to the temptation and, and sinned, even though that sin will not condemn us because we've been forgiven. We're going to be glad for the sacrificial giving we did and the hospitality we showed, and we're going to lament when we were stingy or unwelcoming. We're going to be happy and rewarded for when we blessed with our words. And we're going to feel a sense of loss for when we did the opposite. When we cursed with our words or belittled or gossiped or hated. And we're going to be rewarded for our faith and our hope and our love. However, it's manifested in ways great and ways small, known and unknown. And we're going to lament our failures of faith, whatever they be, known or unknown, public or secret. I think we're going to leave the judgment seat of Christ more thankful for our salvation in Christ than we have ever been before. Because we're going to know, as we've never known before, what it is that we have been saved from and how badly we needed rescuing. I think we're going to cry. And I don't even think we'll know why we're crying. Because it's going to be tears of remorse mixed with tears of joy, mixed with tears of gratitude. Tears of love for the God who loved us and saved us from our sins. Tears of of the gratitude for the generosity of God and not just forgiving our sins but rewarding in these small things and the, the wonderful thing about it, it it carries a sense of I want to say humility and I don't, I don't want to use the word foreboding but it's not something we go into with a great deal of uh, you know uh, we're just uh, overweening confidence even though we know we're saved this, the wonderful thing about it is that the judge who, who knows all and sees all, he loves us. And he's generous and he's merciful and he's kind. At our Greenfield Bible study, we, we've just finished the gospel according to John. And there's something very interesting about the resurrection appearances of Jesus when you stack them all together, when you just take not only John but Luke and Mark and you know, First Corinthians. You know, you take all the resurrection appearances, put them together. Uh, the, the first resurrection appearance to the disciples, recorded by John, is John 20, and it's to all the disciples gathered except for Thomas, who is missing. But we we know from Luke 24:34, and it's confirmed by Paul in First Corinthians 15, that Peter had already had uh, a personal and private encounter with the risen Jesus. And the curious thing, and I think the good thing, is that we don't have any record of what passed between them. We just know that it happened. In Mark, the angel told the woman, tell his disciples, you know, you know that, go tell his disciples and Peter 
that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And I wonder if the women were precise in reporting that, that the angel told us to go tell the disciples and Peter. I wonder what Peter thought about that phrasing. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You know what I think? I just denied Christ three times. Am I no longer one of them? You remember how that went? You know, Peter bragged. This is this how it came about. You, you can look it up. Lord, all these other guys, are when the heat's on, they're going to cut and run. They're going to abandon you, every one of them. John, James, and they're all going to run. Not me. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to face the fire. I'm going to be faithful to you even to death. And you remember, in effect, Jesus says, Peter, <laughs> before the cock crows, in other words, before dawn tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times. And he did. And Luke tells us, Luke tells us, that just as Peter denied Jesus for the third time, and I, I picture as they're leading Jesus out because it says Jesus looked at him, their eyes met. Can you imagine? Their eyes met. And it says Peter went out and wept bitterly. So when the, re and we don't know, this resurrection appearance of Jesus to Peter, we've not been let in on it. We don't know what happened there. We don't have, there's no account of it. We just know that it happened. What do you think they talked about? Do you think Peter had anything he wanted to say? Do you think uh, Jesus said anything to Peter that Peter hoped he would say? Or was humble to hear? And, and I, for one, am... I, I appreciate, and I'm kind of glad that that interview is private because it suggests that some things are between the Lord and his disciples and no one else is invited. But even afterward, we do have a record in John of Jesus, after they've had this private meeting, of Jesus asking Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And what he says the first time, Peter, do you love me more than these? Matching his boast. Do you love me more than these other fellows do? And that wasn't in private. And it wasn't in the, you know, it was in the presence of others. And it wasn't easy for Peter. Peter found it painful. It says Peter was grieved the third time he asked him, do you love me? But the judge loved him, and he restored him, and he blessed him, and he rewarded him. And if you are in Christ, the judge of all mankind loves you, will restore you, will bless you, will reward you, but it all counts. Everything you do, everything you say, even your attitudes, your affections, the thoughts of your mind, and at the judgment of forgiven, 
redeemed people, we will learn and we will know how much it counted, both for good or for ill. Uh, Lord, grant to your followers in this place grace to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind. Help us to live seriously as those who know that there is a judge of all mankind who has been appointed, Jesus Christ the Lord, and that he is just and will render to each man according to his deeds, as the word says. Thank you that our judge is also the Savior of all who believe, who loves us and gave himself for us, that we might stand before you in a righteousness that is not the tattered rags of a sinner's good deeds, but in the very righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins through faith in him. Draw any to yourself who have not believed in Jesus that they may know him as Savior before they face him as judge. We pray in his name. Amen.